Well, good morning. It is so good uh, to see all of you. Uh, by, by nature, I, I typically talk fast, and as I've uh, learned to preach, I, I usually have to slow myself down. Uh, but now, worship's got me so amped up that um, I will probably be done in 20 minutes. Uh, so follow along if you can. The four cups of coffee might help, too. Um, Hey, if, if you have a copy of God's Word, which I hope you do, uh, go to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 8 uh, this morning as we uh, will just continue um, uh, marching our way through and uh, just receiving uh, from the Lord, from His Word. So I, I am ec- excited about this morning to, um, to open the Word of God. Uh, what, what a privilege, what a privilege it is um, that God has preserved his word for us and continues to offer himself to us in relationship, and we get to encounter and experience him through his word. Uh, and, and so um, this morning, as we, as we jump into Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, you know, there's just uh, different times and different ways the text reads that it, it makes sense sometimes to take it in some blocks and some chunks, uh, but we're going to read the whole chapter together. Um, it's 18 verses, um, so not not super long, but long enough. Uh, but what I'm going to ask, and it's something uh, uh, the the family of faith that Christians for um, millennia have done, uh, is to show uh, some honor and respect for the Word of God. And I'm just going to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, if you're able, if you would stand while we read Nehemiah chapter 8, um, and just ask God to to speak to us through His Word. So this is what Nehemiah chapter 8 says. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah, and on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jezebed, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense to that so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And on the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly, all of those who had returned from the captivity, made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. And all God's people said, you may be seated. That is our text this morning. And so if you have been traveling along with us, you know, none of these chapters stand alone. There's a chapter that precedes it and a chapter that comes after it. So last week we talked about Nehemiah chapter 7, which is the first chapter post them finishing the, uh, the wall. And really the, the theme of the chapter was the people getting prepared for worship. And so they were, they had finished this work project on the wall, but now they were getting the, uh, the, the temple workers in order. The Levites were coming back. They were listing the families. They were bringing a tithe into the uh, the temple to begin this worship of the Lord. And so last week was more of a preparation for worship. And this week they actually begin to step into worship as an assembly before God. And so as uh, Nehemiah chapter eight, which you just heard is laid out, it, it does kind of lend itself through, there's this progression that goes through the chapter. And so we're going to kind of take it in three different sections. And so uh, we're going to look at Nehemiah eight, verse one through eight. And so I would just say uh, that the theme of that section as we walk through is that uh, revival always comes with an emphasis on the word of God. That next section, verse 9 through 12, I would say this is that God's invitation is an invitation to joy. And then that last bit of the chapter, I would say that hearing God's word should result in Action. So that's where we're going this morning. But going back to the beginning, if you can just kind of dwell on verse 1 through 8, what we see happening is that the first aspect of the worship they are entering into when all the things are assembled, all the things are already, they bring out the book of the law. And so Ezra is mentioned. You might know that he gets his own book. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries but fulfilled different roles, Nehemiah being that organizer that brought the people together to work. But Ezra, his job, I love if you read the the book of Ezra, it says he just committed himself to knowing the word of God and understanding it. And so that was his role for the people that he gets to be in that solemn assembly and declare the word of God. So we see that being that first aspect of worship that they enter into is the teaching of the word of God. And I love how it's emphasized in several places, you might have picked up on it, that it wasn't just this aspect of uh, the religious leader, Ezra, being up front, being the one who gets to talk to God, gets to learn from the word of God, but there's this emphasis put 
on them desiring for all of the people to understand what the word of God means. I think that's pretty um, important for us. And so it lists all these other people, um, the different Levites that were along with Ezra. So Ezra obviously was up front. They uh, made a position of prominence so the people could see him and hear the reading. But I'm just guessing from all those names we've been reading in previous chapters, they didn't have microphones. Um, And so it talks about how there was these different Levites out throughout the crowd and they were also giving understanding to the people. And so there is both this emphasis on the word of God being read and proclaimed, but also on the instruction for the people so that they actually know and understand what they are hearing. They, I, I think that's pretty important here in the text, how much it mentions that. I love how it says it in verse 8, and I, I love that the ESV does this direct translation. It says, they read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so if you look at the history of the church, I'm saying going back to the Old Testament all the way to present times, you know, like our everyday lives, the people of God have a lot of ups and downs. And there are some moments where we follow God wholeheartedly, and there are moments when we stray from God. And you see that with the people of Israel. And continually, when you get those moments when they were coming out of straying and turning back to the Lord— a pivotal aspect of that turning back is getting into the word of God. And so I would say that, that anytime we look at the history of the church to the history of the people of God, when revival happens, when renewal happens, there is an emphasis put on the word of God. And so we see that even in Nehemiah. All these people are returning from exile and they have their oral traditions. They know that the the people were chosen by God to be his special people, to live separate, to live differently, but they actually haven't encountered the law of Moses in several generations. And so there is this revival happening, this returning to their homeland, this God building back up the wall, making them a people again. And the, one of the first aspects of that, them being that people is to bring out the word of God so that people can hear it, people can know it, people can understand it. And so I was even thinking about if you know the book of uh, the Kings in the Bible where there's all these up and ups and downs with the nation of Israel, that one king follows God, then the next six turn away from God. One of the ones we just love the story because it's such a unique story is the story of Josiah, who became king as a child. And his father and his grandfather, neither one of them had served the Lord. But Josiah, as a young child, dedicated himself to the Lord. But you get in his story that although he is honoring God, it is devoid of the law of God. They just haven't had it. And so he begins this restoration in the kingdom of Israel, like, hey, we're not going to follow the false pagan gods of the people around us. We're going to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And so he begins to repair the temple. And when that happens, they actually find again the scrolls. They recover the books of the law. And for the first time in three generations, begin to read it. And they, um, it completely transforms Israel that they know once again once God, what God has asked of them, how he has instructed them to live and has this great revival throughout Israel. And so anytime God is doing an incredible work that there is a revival or a renewal amongst his people, It always comes with an emphasis on what his word says. And so although we are several hundred years removed from it, even this day, uh, I would say our church, our tradition, our how our expression of following Jesus is very much a product of the Protestant Reformation. 
which is just a fascinating history if you ever want to read farther on it. But there is a lot that happened during that time in the history of the church that we are still influenced by today. Like I said, we are still a product of uh, a lot of the, the, the churning God did during that time. And so if you know just one figure from the Reformation, typically most people are kind of familiar with Martin Luther who um, God was just doing a work in his life, and he saw some things within the church that he thought were contrary to the Bible and began to kind of um, ask some questions, make some changes. And so you know what we kind of celebrate as the the kind of kickoff point of the Protestant Reformation is that um, he had made this list, his 95 theses. We even cover this in in public school, so I'm I'm sure there's some familiarity. But he had um, seen all these different things, all these different practices that the people of God were doing, and then he was looking at the Word of God and seeing some contradictions between both the practice and the Word of God. And so he made this list of 95 different things, that practices that he thought needed to be reformed. And so I'm sure it wasn't as dramatic a moment as we look back to, but what he did is he went and he took his list and he nailed it to Wittenberg Castle, which was where, you know, kind of just public forum, he posted it where people could see it because he wanted to begin this conversation about, hey, let's get back to what the Word of God teaches. But what it did is it really just ignited this whole firestorm in Europe uh, that changed the shape of the church today. And um, even to this day, you know, we have the Catholic-Protestant split, and we have different denominations, and um, there's too much of that to go completely into. But some of the things that came out of the Reformation that still, I would say, have a profound effect on all of us today, even if you haven't realized it, is one, is very foundationally, is this commitment to champion the teaching and understanding of the Word of God for everyone. That it's not for an elite few, it's not just for the spiritual among us, that the Word of God is for everyone. And so I love that even um, what one of the things Martin Luther did is that when he wrote his 95 Thesis, he actually wrote it in German. So he was a Catholic priest, he was educated, he would have been able to write it in Latin, but his desire as a priest that had been, um, he had also been teaching at a seminary, is that he wanted everybody to understand and know the Word of God. So he put it in a language that they could read and understand even the common people who weren't considered in the educated classes. And so as that kicked off and there was all these different reforms happening and uh, different churches were forming and people were kind of asking the question of like, okay, um, you know, if we're, we're seeing some differences from uh, the Catholic Church, you know, we're no longer under the Pope, like how are we going to do church? And so there was this idea of like, okay, let's go back to just the scriptures. You know, if you're taking the Bible alone, what does that look like? And so there was this idea of like, hey, maybe we should go back to even the original languages. So this sparked off all these different Bible translation projects of going back to the Greek, going back to the Hebrew. Let's translate from the original languages, not just from the Latin translations we have. And in that season of church history, um, men and women gave their lives so that the Bible could be translated into English, so that the Bible could be translated into German, so that everybody would have access to the Word of God. Another thing that just occurred, and maybe some of y'all have some familiarity with this history, and I know some people might have uh, grown up in the Catholic setting. If if you go into a Catholic church, even to this day, there is a very uh, formulaic layout to a Catholic church. 
And it's really quite beautiful. You know, it, it is um, um, uh, situated like a crucifix, that there is the, the, the cross beam and the way that the seats sit out and the aisle represents the cross. And there's a lot of symbolism that goes into the layout of a Catholic church. And one of the things you might have noticed is that typically in a Catholic church, right up front, there will be a communion table. And so that's there. And then usually, um, whoever is teaching from the Word of God, usually there is a, a, a dais raised up to the side, and he's off to the side, and that's where the Word of God is taught. And so one of the things that happened out of the Protestant Reformation, as they looked back into the Word of God, is that they changed some of the format of how we worship. And so um, as Protestants and even as Bible Church Protestants in 2022, one of the things we do is that we put the teaching of the Word of God front and center. The teaching of the Word of God is not off to this side because literally and physically we want to emphasize that um, we see the Word of God as central to the gathering of God's people. And so there's all these little things that came out of the Reformation, but one of the biggest emphases is that the Word of God is for all people and that we should all seek to know it and understand it. And it's our job as the community of faith to partner in that endeavor because whenever God is doing a work of renewal or revival, it always comes on an emphasis on what he has said. And so for us, even in this day, we want to put the teaching of the Word of God as central in our worship. And so just like the people gathered together, and man, y'all got it easy. I know sometimes you think me and Charlie go long if you get out afternoon, but if you just read how their worship service went, it's like seven days later they stopped reading the Bible. And so um, even for us this morning, you know, the largest portion of our service will probably be the teaching of the Word of God. You know, we bookend it with music, which I think is just such a beautiful way that it engages our hearts a little differently, and we want to offer this praise back to God. But the central aspect of our worship is wanting to hear from God, and how do we do that? We read his word. And so revival always comes with an emphasis on the word of God, and the Bible tells us why. Because all scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Because it tells us for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so like the people of Israel, that God has given different roles in the body, and some have been given uh, the gift and responsibility of teaching, it comes with the expectation and the heavy weight of wanting all people to understand both what God's Word says and what it means. And that's what we want to be about even today as God is building something in our body. We want everybody to know the Word of God and to understand the Word of God. And so this interesting thing happens after they hear the word of the Lord. And so we're going to jump into our next section, starting in verse 9. Because this thing that occurs is that they hear the word of the Lord and people begin to mourn and to weep. 
Verse 9 says that. It says, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And so it, it told us within this that they um, were reading back um, the law of Moses, so probably first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, they got all the instructions on after God had brought the Jewish people out of the Exodus that, and established them as a nation, and the law was given through Moses on, hey, this is how I want you to live. And so the people are hearing this for, for the first time in several generations, and um, their gut response is mourning and weeping. And I think I understand why. Um, um, Paul says it really well in Romans chapter 3. He says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so these people that are returning to their homeland, and they probably have an understanding of that God gave us commandments, God gave us a way to live, but they didn't know that fully. And now they are hearing for the first time all of the ways that they have not been living according to the word of God. And that's a heavy moment. And probably all of us have had moments in our life when we um, had those moments of clarity where uh, God's word came really true to us and it contrasted with the way we live our lives. And we call that conviction. And it is a work of the Holy Spirit exposing in us the things that are not of God. And it is a necessary work for us so that we understand our place, that there is this holy God out there who has ordered his universe in a certain way. And my position in that is have one who has fallen short. You know, Paul talks about that in Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so I understand that gut default reaction to people hearing the law for the first time that they mourn and they weep because they have become aware of their sinfulness. They've become aware how their families have not followed God and the previous generations turned away from the Lord and turned to things that were lesser. And so there is this reaction to weeping. But I love that Nehemiah and Ezra and the different Levites and the scribes, the, the people who were more learned in the Bible, learned in the traditions, that their response is to call the people away from that. And so it's interesting as you um, uh, pursue uh, the teachings of Christianity, the teachings of Jesus, and as you encounter different people from different traditions or who have different understandings of the Bible, the Christian message can be presented in a lot of different ways. You know, it is comprehensive of life, of the God who set things in order. So just depending on who you first encountered that was a Christian or your first exposure to it, you, you might have um, been brought into the faith uh, just with a different level or understanding of what is the, the central themes of the Bible. And so it can be really easy to come into the faith with a central theme of condemnation. You know, usually when we present the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we try to explain what we actually believe about the universe around us, a lot of times we do start with the fall. That there is a holy God and we have fallen short of his glory, of his holiness. And so as a person brought into sinfulness, into a sinful world, I do stand under condemnation. And hopefully in um, our, our understanding of God's word, that we don't stop in that moment, in that moment of condemnation, but we understand what Ephesians 2 says right in the middle of it, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And so there is this understanding that when we see God's perfect law, our lives are going to be in contrast and we have fallen short. But I love that the teachers of the law and the leaders of the people of Israel are saying, hey, put aside your mourning. 
because what they are receiving that day in the message of the law is not a message of condemnation, but a message of invitation. And so when we read the law of God, even today, if you read the Old Testament rules and precepts and prescriptions, it does contrast with our lives and how we have fallen short, but the message of it is an invitation to live rightly with God. It's not a list of all the ways you have failed today. It is a, it's a, an invitation to walk in this relationship with God daily so that you can live rightly with him in the way he is prescribed in relationship. And I think that's what they're trying to get to with the people like, hey, um, there is a time for mourning. There is a time for conviction, but it's not today. Today we're going to celebrate. So when the law has been brought out and the people have heard what God has said and how they should live their lives, I would truly say that what they're saying is it is an invitation to joy. It is not God saying, here's all the ways you failed. It is God saying, hey, here's all the ways to live rightly with me as my people, as I designed you to. I want you to be with me. And we see that message all the way woven throughout the scriptures. I would say that that is the, the, the dominant emotion that we should experience in our relationship with God is one of joy. And so I love even as uh, David writing in the Psalms in Psalm, Psalm 19, he talks about how much he just loves the law, which is weird. I, I, I haven't had that experience in reading the book of Leviticus myself, but he talks about it. He's like, hey, on your law, I meditate day and night. He sa- and he says that how his rules are perfect and his law is right. And he says there's so much more to be desired than gold, even much precious gold. And he says, it, he says, for by them is your servant warned and in keeping them, there is great reward. That's an invitation to joy to live rightly. Uh, And I, I love even when we stand condemned by our own actions, it's God that is continuing to work redemption and revival for his people so that we can continue to say yes to that invitation to live in his joy. I think about what uh, King David did when he uh, took Bathsheba and then had her husband killed and then finally realized the weight of his sin when Nathan the prophet came and exposed it to him. We get Psalm 51, which is David's psalm of confession about all the ways he knows he has sinned against God. And I love the line that David put in that. He says, return the joy of my salvation. That we know in our natural state, separated from God, we are condemned. We are a people who have failed and have turned to other things and we have strayed. But God's invitation is to come back and live in my joy. I love the story. Well, I love it, but it makes me sad. In Matthew 19, there's this encounter Jesus has uh, with a young man who wants to honor God. And he says, he comes to him, and he says, Master, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the law, don't you? And he's like, yeah, I've kept all the law since, since birth. I've done all the right things. I've checked all of the boxes. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And it says that the man went away sad because he had many possessions. And so I love the fact that it exposes that when we turn from God to other things, that is where the sadness lies. But if he had given up his possessions and followed Jesus, he would experience a joy that was way beyond any material possessions he could have experienced. And finally, on the joy front, um, one of the best just ways I think we could understand the gospel is through the, the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. Because it's the story of all of our lives. 
that all of us have chosen our own way over the goodness that God has offered to us in relationship. And it is, um, you know, just that relationship, how it says it so clearly that it's like a father and his kids. And some of the kids say, you know, Dad, I just want my inheritance so I can go do what I want. And it's, it's such a beautiful, beautiful story, and it hits on so many different levels. But I, I love the son's reaction when he kind of hits rock bottom, when all the money runs out, uh, because it's my reaction. It's like, okay, you know, if I am just contrite enough, and if I just make my dad enough promises, maybe he'll just let me be a servant. You know, that, that would be better than my life currently, that, God, I'll, I will do anything you want. You know, I'm going to be sad the rest of my life to make up for what I've done. But when he comes back to his father, what does his father do? He doesn't say, yeah, take, take a good week, think about what you've done, and then you can be my son again. No, his dad throws a party. He says, because my, 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 my child was lost, and now they are found. My, my son was dead, and now he is alive. The invitation of Jesus, even when we stand condemned by our own decisions, is to come experience my joy in right relationship with me. God's invitation is one of joy. And so I love the statement that uh, the leaders that Nehemiah and Ezra made to the people. He says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's an incredible statement. And it's hard to get my mind around, especially on the days when I'm not feeling especially strong in my relationship with the Lord. Like, how can I experience his joy in such a way and, and have my head and my heart connect in such a way that I can be sustained by uh, this God who offers us his joy? And I, and I think about what it says about Jesus, that for the joy set before him, he went to the cross and I have to think about that, that action of Jesus going to the cross and the suffering he was going to endure on our behalf and the wounds that his body was going to take, that if God's joy can bring Jesus through the cross, what could it not bring me through in my own life? That his joy in himself that he offers to us is stronger than my sin and is stronger than my despair and is stronger than the sufferings I've been through. That God is continuing to invite me into this relationship to live rightly with him and experience his joy. As the chapter wraps up, verse 13 and, and following, um, there's just something that really struck me on how simply the people are receiving the word of God. And I, I think there's a lot that could be dug into on, on the different festivals that God commanded his people. But just, just as I read it and, and see what happens, I love that they're opening the book of the law and they, they hit the part where it's like, hey, in the seventh month, you should celebrate this feast. And they realize like, okay, we haven't done that. And so I kind of just feel like they heard it, and then they all stopped and like, we're supposed to live in booths? Let's go get some branches. And they immediately went out and did what the word of God says. And I think that's a really incredible testimony. I, I love verse 16. It says that. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of the God. And so they, they read the instruction, and they turned, and they went and did it. 
It's a really incredible testimony to what God is doing in their life. And I think this idea of revival and emphasizing the word of God, that it is not a complete action. It is not a complete work in your own heart if you just hear it and then nothing occurs afterwards. I love how I heard Francis Chan explain it like this. He's like, what parent would be satisfied, you know, if you told your kid, go clean your room. And then an hour later, you came back and said, did you clean your room? And they said, no, dad, but, you know, I thought about what you said. I invited some friends over, and we all studied what you said. I memorized what you said. I even learned it in Greek. <laughs> but did you actually do it? No. And so I love that hearing is supposed to move us towards action. And in fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema of Israel, which we studied a couple years ago as a church, where it says, hear, O Israel, that, that word in the Hebrew, actually, you know, it does convey action, that hearing, the actual idea of hearing the word of God means that an action occurred in your life. And so I love that that's what they're doing right here is they're reading the word of God collectively as a people, and they're seeing like, hey, God's word says this, Okay, we should go do that thing. And so I think uh, the Apostle James, he, he put it like this in James chapter 1. He says, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. You know, we've tried to come around this theme of being built to last and how it's God building us to last. And it is this metaphor of what he is doing, the work in our lives. And so it definitely made me just reflect on what uh, Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7 about a wise man and a foolish man and how he builds his life. So he contrasts it that it's like, building your house, one builds it on a rock and one builds it on sand. And even if we're not all structural engineers, we could probably guess which one is the better foundation, the rock. But, but I love what Jesus says right at the beginning of that. He says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who builds his house on a rock. Because when we do what the word of God says, it builds this foundation in our life of dependence upon him so that when the storms come, which they will, not if the storms come, but when the storms come, our life is going to be secure because our life is built on something that cannot be taken away, an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to the word of God and as an act of worship, when the people of God come together and we open it and we read it and we think about what it says and what it means for us, there should be this result in our life that we live out what it says. And sometimes that's hard because there's portions of the Bible it's like, I don't know how I go and live this out. But there is plenty in the Bible that is very clear and very explicit. And if you read through the teachings of Jesus, if you get into the Sermon on the Mount or any of the epistles, it is very clear on how we are supposed to live in the way of Jesus. And I love uh, the Apostle John in uh, 1 John 2, he actually talks about that we should walk as he walked. 
And so we're not just supposed to uh, study in the intellectual sense of getting into the word of God. We're supposed to read it because it is God's um, revelation of himself so that we can encounter and experience him. And it is supposed to translate into action, into movement in our lives. As we wrap up this morning, um, I wanted to uh, use an analogy from a movie and I do this from time to time, and inevitably, any time I reference a movie, someone afterwards comes up to me and says, oh, you know, I've never seen that movie. And I'm just going to tell you today, if you haven't seen this movie, um, you're part of the problem. <laughs> so The Princess Bride. So, so right near the beginning of the movie, you get the, the two main characters, Wesley and Buttercup, um, I'm not going to explain anymore. Like I said, if you don't know, I just have one question for you. How dare you? Um, so Wesley and Buttercup, you get this relationship. And this is, this is not going to be a perfect analogy, by the way. Um, but you get Buttercup giving Wesley commands. And what does he say to her every time in response? As you wish. So she says, hey, fetch me that pitcher as you wish. Polish my horse's saddle as you wish. And then it says there's this moment of realization for Buttercup that really when Wesley is saying, as you wish, what he really means is, I love you. And I was just thinking about that uh, just yesterday as I was reading over my notes, um, that what Jesus said as an indication about his followers is that if you love me, you will obey my commands. And so when, when God has decreed things for us and we say yes to the things of God, it's not just um, a begrudging, um, okay, so I don't get smited, I will do this thing. No, it's when I'm saying yes to the things of God, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I love you, Lord. And in, in that analogy definitely would not be complete without the understanding of we love him because he first loved us that this is not a, a one-sided relationship of us just trying to appease some angry God. It is this God that has offered us this incredible invitation to live within his joy in relationship. And he has uh, spoken to us the best way to live in his world. And so as we read his word and try to apply it into our lives, when we come across things that are commandments or dictates of do this, walk in this way, go this way, I'm going to say, as you wish, Lord because I love him, because he, because he loved me, because he looked at my sinful, broken state and chose me to be his son and chose you to be his children, that the Father says, come to all who are weary and to all who are mourn, who mourn and to all those who are heavy laden. He, he says, come. And that's the invitation we get to receive every single day, because that's what even Jesus says. He says, take up your cross daily, Every single day we have this opportunity of the God of the universe saying to his children, come, experience my joy, experience what it means to live rightly in relationship together. And I want all of us collectively as a church body to say, as you wish, Lord. Would you pray with me?